It really is a blessing, isn't it, to be able to gather, to assemble in this way on this Sunday afternoon. We've already been blessed with the opportunity of a worship service this morning and yet again this afternoon. Another opportunity to be enriched and encouraged as not only we sing and pray and participate in the other aspects of worship, but also to give some attention to a section of the Word of God for the next few moments. Last Sunday night, we began a a very brief two-part series of lessons on the timeline of the Old Testament. And in fact, you'll notice this in tonight is part two or installment two, if you please, of that brief series. I think some commented that our, our appreciation covered several hundred years, of course, of time last Sunday night. And I hope that as we at least gave an appreciation to that, that it was beneficial to assist us to place those characters and those events of the Old Testament into their proper place chronologically so that we can better understand the message of the Word of God as we encounter it. Tonight we'll continue that by looking again at the Old Testament. But tonight's focus will really be, as we'll perhaps see on the next slide, it's going to really pick up where we left off then. Now, frankly, we will at least revisit a little bit of the time frame of last Sunday night, but tonight our focus really will be on the prophets. As we're probably well aware, the last 17 books of the Old Testament are books of prophecy, beginning with Isaiah and commencing with Malachi. We first of all have five books of major prophecy, followed by 12 books of minor prophecy, and those prophets span hundreds of years of Old Testament biblical history. It's, it would be useful, especially as we reflect on the message of those prophets, to place them within the proper appreciation of the chronology. And tonight, we're going to attempt to do that. Perhaps it's fair to say, as you come near the bottom of that slide, that one more time, as I mentioned last Sunday, some of the dates that I'll use tonight, depending on what reference you consult, they might differ with what I'm going to, to, to at least present to you. But I think we're close. Within a year or two here or there, I think the message is reasonably clear on, on the chronology. And so it is with that in mind. Let's perhaps continue as we then look at this next slide. With our interest being the prophets, one of the matters that most readily could come before us is there were some prophets who labored earlier in the Old Testament period. And yet some of those names are very familiar to you and me. Moses is called a prophet. In fact, as you and I well remember, in Deuteronomy chapter number 3, he himself is called one, and not only that, later in the New Testament, that passage is quoted using the word prophecy, and in fact, it is there stated he was in essence one who looked down the stream of time and really was a forerunner of Jesus. Not only that, what about Samuel? Now, you and I know that he could be reckoned as a judge, and he was the last of the 15 judges, but he's also called a prophet in 1 Samuel 9, verse 9. Nextly, Nathan. Nathan labored in the life and times of David. In fact, while David was reigning on the throne, Nathan was one of the prophets who labored with him and who challenged him on several occasions in matters that he was doing that was not exactly proper. Finally, I chose to mention Gad. He too was a prophet laboring at the time of David. Now you'll notice there's three periods after there. There's in essence more prophets that I might have listed. I thought although our time might be better spent 
to cast a spotlight on specifically arriving at some of those powerful writing prophets near the end of the Old Testament. In the year 940 B.C., we arrive at the closing of the reign of Solomon. Remember, first there was Saul, and then there was David, and then thirdly there was, of course, Solomon. But after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was rent asunder, split into two parts. There was ten tribes who banded together and basically made up what we would call the northern kingdom of Israel. Two other tribes, however, namely Benjamin and Judah, they bound themselves together and made up the southern kingdom of, Ju of, of Judah. Now, it is with that in mind, we now can trace two separate histories for the next several hundred years. First, let's ta tackle the northern kingdom. That northern kingdom of Israel passed through a total of 20 kings, and the Bible is relatively clear in saying every one of them was wicked. Every one of those northern kings... Now, you probably can list some of them. Ahab was one of them. We remember he and his wicked wife, Jezebel. But not only that, he was just one out of the 20. The first one was a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the one who caused Israel to sin. He was such a foolish one in terms of choices. Maybe in light of that, you might note this. Finally, that northern kingdom of Israel ran its course and in 722 B.C., the kingdom of Assyria, mighty, cruel, powerful, rigorous, that kingdom came against Samaria and conquered it. And the northern kingdom was taken off into captivity. Now, when that happened in 722 B.C., you and I might pause then to reflect what were some of the prophets who labored in that northern kingdom before they were taken off into captivity. And you and I will recognize some of these names. What about our good friend Elijah? What a bold and strong proponent of the things of God in the midst of Ahab, in the midst of Jezebel. Elijah remained loyal and faithful. He was the one who prayed, God, take away the rain. And for three and a half years it didn't rain. You'll notice he labored about 850 B.C. Idolatry was extremely serious in Israel by this time. Remember, Jezebel and Ahab both encouraged it. They brought idolatrous activity into Israel and promoted it. But Elijah stood strong against it. Now we remember Jezebel threatened him with death. She didn't like him even a little bit. Maybe it's fair to say his successor was a man named Elisha. Notice in 840 B.C., here too was another man who labored in the midst of this terrible idolatry, attempting to call the people back to a right service of God, attempting to instill within them the recognition of the one true God in heaven. Elisha too met a lot of obstacles. After him, we come to Amos. Now, Amos was one of the writing prophets. In other words, he wrote one of the books of the Old Testament. As you and I remember the minor prophets, there's Hosea and Joel and then Amos. As you look at about 760 B.C., you may notice about a little over 100 years, or actually a little less than 100 years elapsed between the time of Elisha and the time of Amos. What were some of the matters that Amos faced? I've simply tried to summarize it like this. Amos was not a professional prophet. On one occasion, he himself said, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. 
But when God roars, I've got to speak. Amos chapter 7, verses 5 and following. And so when the God of heaven called him and commissioned him, he by nature was a resident of the southern kingdom. But God said, I want you to go to the northern kingdom and preach to them, prophesy to them. And he did. His message was bold. His message was direct. He urged them to repent. Sad to say that his preaching didn't have a lot of the response you would hope for. In fact, I've often found it rather surprising, also rather sad. When he stood before the king and said, you need to repent and your people need to repent, the high priest slapped him on the face and said, we've heard enough of your preaching. Go back home. How would you like to be treated that way? Isn't it amazing that Amos basically said, before I go, I've got one more message. And so it was that he delivered one final sermon before he left, and they didn't like that either. How about the last one, Hosea? By now, you probably gain the appreciation. Those books that you and I have before us in the Old Testament, they're not always in chronological order. Although Hosea comes before Amos in the Old Testament, actually Hosea is after Amos by a few years. The prophet Hosea. One of the major lessons you and I learned from that book is how God used him and used his marriage. Isn't it amazing? Hosea was married to a prostitute. She was married to a woman who wasn't faithful to him. In fact, she had children by another man. Hosea had to go buy back his wife. He had to pay to buy her back because she was out on the street playing the harlot. God used that as a powerful lesson. God said, just like Hosea, I've been true to Israel, but Israel hadn't been true to me. They have played the prostitute. They've played the harlot going after all these other gods, but I've been true to them. And God called them back and used Hosea to send forth that powerful message. As you and I close that slide, we've sort of looked to this point. And here's a brief map. One that highlights these two kingdoms. First of all, if I might ask you to notice, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now remember, in terms of size, the southern kingdom was much the smaller. It only had two tribes in it. But it lasted so much longer, as the next slide will attempt to tell us. How about Judah? We just learned a minute ago that Israel had 20 kings, and all of them were wicked. Let's turn our attention to Judah. Judah passed through 21 kings. Now, it's true, many of them were evil, but thankfully, some of them were good. I would ask you to notice, you and I probably can list some of the good ones. Hezekiah was a good king. Josiah was a good king. And we even remember several others selected throughout those 21 who, in fact, thankfully and blessedly, were those who had a desire to please the God of heaven. But you might notice that they too eventually also became evil. In 722 B.C., that northern kingdom was taken captive. Notice this one lasted longer till 586. It lasted almost another 150 years. Isn't it interesting then to note some of these matters? God sent several prophets to labor to these people, trying to restore them to goodness, trying to remind them of the need to be repentant. In terms of the numbers, what about Shemaiah? 
I suppose about the only thing you'd I remember about the prophet Shemaiah was he prophesied to Jeroboam. That is to say, he issued a warning to him, do not attack the southern kingdom. There really isn't much more said in the Old Testament about that prophet. But following him, how about we come to another writing prophet, Joel, the second of the writing minor prophets, Hosea and then Joel. Joel labored at 770 B.C. He again urged the people not to be just repentant on the outside. But what about the inside? Rend your heart and not your garments, Joel 2.13. That message from Joel was a reminder the people again were given to activities including idolatry which were not right and they needed to change. Following Joel, we come to Isaiah. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. He, in fact, is often called the Messianic prophet. He, in fact, often prophesied about the coming of the Christ, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the one down the stream of time who would be the anointed one of God. You probably can notice that about 740 B.C. is when he labored. You'll notice that's about 750 years prior to the birth of Jesus. Following Isaiah, we come to the little prophet Micah. In seven chapters, that prophet Micah set before us a beautiful set of prophecies and oracles. Perhaps chiefly among them, sins against humanity. Micah warned the people, don't turn your back on orphans and widows and those who are strangers and those who are poor. You've got to have a heart recognizing the fact that they too are such that if you're able to assist and help them, make certain that you do and don't ever take advantage of them. In Micah chapter 7, you might recall in verses 3 and 4, that was the very place wherein we find that beautiful scene that people had become so evil. They did evil with both hands earnestly. Isn't that a sad reflection of what should have been the people of God? Following Micah, we come to the little prophet Zephaniah. Three little chapters in that book. You'll notice that again, a number of decades pass before the time we come to Zephaniah. At that point, you'll notice the central theme of that little book is the day of the Lord. If you can just remember that you'll primarily remember what Zephaniah is all about. Time and again in that book, that phrase occurs, and because of that, we learn that God had a message for them. Many people were under the illusion that the day of the Lord was a great day, a powerful day, a pleasant and fantastic day. But Zephaniah warned them, it's not going to be that way for everybody. It's going to be a day of darkness, gloominess. You're going to go into captivity if you don't repent. Isn't it interesting how that in many ways that message is also true of the day of judgment? There's a lot of people walking on our planet who supposedly think that day is going to be a beautiful day for them, but they've never obeyed the gospel. It's not going to be a pleasant day for them. It's going to be a day when they're going to be asked, Why didn't you obey me? I died on the cross for you. After Zephaniah, we come to Jeremiah. Beginning in about 627 B.C., this man labored for roughly 40 years. No wonder he's called the weeping prophet of Judah. How often do we see proverbial tears flowing from the eyes of Jeremiah as he lamented over his people who were faithless and unrepentant. God so much wanted to do them good. 
but they, however, were so wicked. You may notice the book Prophet Habakkuk. By now, keep in mind the year 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Jerusalem for the first time. So this in 604 was right after that. They had already begun to recognize the fullness of that captivity. And they now, as you can well appreciate, were beginning to be in a very difficult consideration to be sure. As we transition to the next slide, we come to look at some additional prophets. So we've looked at Israel and now also somewhat of Judah. But you may notice that there were some other Old Testament prophets who really delivered the message of God to nations other than Israel and other than Judah. Let's list three of them. What about Jonah? Of all the prophets of the Old Testament, he was the only sorry one in the barrel. God told him, go and preach to Nineveh, cry against it because their wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah boarded a ship at Joppa headed for Tarshish, exactly the opposite direction. Here was one who willfully and deliberately chose to disobey. He did not go to Nineveh the first time. But you and I remember that a storm that God sent arose at sea and the mariners cast Jonah overboard and he spent three days in the belly of a great fish. And so it was he learned a valiant lesson. He prayed unto his God in heaven and that great fish spat him out on the ground and God said, one more time, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. And this time he went without delay. I believe I would have too. But as you can well tell, this time when he came to Nineveh, they repented. Maybe you and I should pause and say this. As you and I read the Old Testament, we know that God's chosen people were the people of Israel. We know that those are the very ones whom he said in Deuteronomy 7, I have loved you. But that doesn't mean that God didn't have some concern for the other nations of the, of the world. The Ninevites, they were the people of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. God sent a prophet to those people. He sent Jonah. Did God care about them? Did He want them to repent? Sure He did. That's the message He gave Jonah to preach. But what about another one? What about Nahum? Sometimes it's, it goes unnoticed, but Nahum is really the sequel to the book of Jonah. 135 years later, those same people who had repented under the preaching of Jonah had now become wicked again, and God sent them Nahum. He sent them a man to proclaim again the need to turn back to him, but this time they didn't. And this time Assyria was destroyed. In the third place, what about Obadiah? The only one chapter book in the Old Testament. Obadiah, his message was direct and it was directed to the people of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Now as you and I travel down the corridors of Old Testament history, we're aware the Edomites bubbled to the surface on occasion. They were the enemies of Israel and they were several times a thorn in the side of Israel. But ultimately, they were a people who were prideful. And in Obadiah verse 3, God said, The pride of your heart has deceived you. They thought God couldn't even bring them down, but they were mistaken. God did bring them down, and so you and I come to two additional prophets on that slide. Now you'll notice I tried to divide these. 
Earlier, you and I noticed the Assyrian Empire captured the northern kingdom and off into captivity they went in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, too, was taken into captivity in 586 B.C., this time by Babylon. So what happened once the captivity began? It brings us to Daniel. The prophet Daniel, he, you see, labored after the captivity started. I tried to summarize it like this. At about 605 B.C., Daniel began his prophetic efforts. He ultimately would labor in the throne room of Persia. Remember, Daniel rose to tremendous prominence. In his book, notice he was second in command even to the Persian ruler. The position he occupied was one where there were many others who were jealous of him. Remember, those three friends who had an edict signed that there is to be no prayer offered to anybody but the king. But Daniel prayed faithfully three times every day with his window open, pointed toward Jerusalem. We see in this a man who had risen to great prominence. Isn't there a lesson in that for you and me? No matter what station in life you and I occupy, whether it's the gutter of life or we labor in the throne room, let's be faithful to the Lord. He will use us wherever that station happens to be and we can be a great influence to those about us. There was a contemporary of Daniel, however, a man named Ezekiel. Ezekiel, in 48 chapters, what a tremendous task he had. By this time, the people had been taken into captivity. God commissioned Ezekiel, you labor among them. Down there by the river Kibar, you let them know the reason they're here is because of their own sin. But I still care about them, and I still want a remnant to return, so you need to be faithful to me. Many of them didn't. Thankfully, a few of them did. As you and I come near the bottom of that slide, we appreciate then this man, Ezekiel, as he labored along with Daniel. It brings us back to notice some additional comments, again, about these prophets. You see, there were some prophets in the Old Testament who labored after the exile, after they came back from Babylonian captivity. Let's begin by observing there were three returns from that Babylonian captivity. First, under Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. Secondly, under Ezra in 457 B.C. And thirdly, under the leadership of Nehemiah in 445 B.C. As far as the prophets who labored at that time, our attention comes to Haggai. Now he too, a rather small Old Testament prophet, only two chapters in that book, the prophet Haggai, the people as they had returned, the first task ought to have been to restructure the temple so there's a place to worship. There's a lesson in that too. The first thing you and I always need to do is take care to ensure that the opportunity for worship is before us. Anytime you ever take a vacation and travel somewhere, one of the first things to do, check and find a congregation of the Lord's people. So you can meet with the brethren there. It's fine to appreciate the other pleasantries and the other enjoyments, but let's never forget the impressive and the unassailable need to worship God on the first day of the week and to gather with those brethren. Perhaps it's also true in the days of Haggai. As I mentioned, they did begin to rebuild the temple. They laid its foundation. 
But then they stopped. Several reasons in the Old Testament are given. One, there were adversaries. There are some other people that did not want that temple rebuilt. I suppose under the matter of discouragement, they stopped. They got the foundation done, but no more. God lit a fire under them, though, with the coming of a man named Haggai. And they did more in 24 days than they had done in the previous 16 years. That's what a prophet of God can do. He, in fact, encouraged them to the point where they again rebuilt that nature of that temple. And again, what they did in 24 days of three and a half weeks. That's remarkable, isn't it? Isn't it amazing what the power of the Word of God can be to you and to me? Following Haggai, you notice we come to Zechariah who labored at almost the same time. Zechariah has 14 chapters in that book. And in that book of Zechariah, we appreciate this, the apocalyptic character of that book. In fact, one thing to perhaps keep in mind, Zechariah, perverse, has more references to Jesus Christ than any other book in the Old Testament. Even more than Isaiah, the Messianic prophet. There is more per square inch, if you please, in Zechariah, prophesying about the nature of the Christ and His work than there is in any other Old Testament book. That fascination helps us keep in mind God had a plan for these people. They needed to remain faithful and holy and pure so that along the character of time, out of the bloodline of David, the great Son of God could be born. You and I know that did come to fruition. It did happen. But you'll notice it's going to be over 500 years from the days of Zechariah until Mary would give birth to that little baby Jesus. Following Zechariah, we come to the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. He's the 39th and final book in the Old Testament. Bold, powerful, and he had a very unusual style. I say it's unusual because no other Old Testament book is written that way. It's a question and answer format. I might use that as an opportunity to remind all of us. Again, we're soon going to have a suggestion box, so if you have questions or particulars along that line that we might develop or at least answer in the context of a lesson, why well, soon you'll be able to write them on a piece of paper and put them in a suggestion box, and we'll be able to consider them in due course. But Malachi... Eight times in that book, we find a presentation where a question is asked, and they answered it, but then God, through the prophet, asserted that your answer is not right. For instance, will a man rob God? And they said, well, of course not. And God said, you have robbed me. And they said, how have we robbed you? Do you begin to see the point? If it's a question in back and forth presentation, and God ended up describing them, this is how you robbed me. I say all of that to say, as you and I have looked at those prophets, Malachi rebuked them because their heart wasn't in their worship. They were going through the motions. It had become a ritual, a habit. And God said, that won't do. Isn't that too a lesson for you and me? God wants us to worship Him in spirit, and in truth, John 4, 24. Surely as we've gathered on occasions like this one, we have thrilled and yearned at the thought of being here. And so it is tonight as we've assembled for this purpose and at this location. We close that slide by noting, once you close Malachi, 
you now appreciate that over 400 years passed between the last Old Testament book and the first New Testament one. What happened during those 400 years? Just because there were no prophets, did that mean God wasn't interested? Did it mean He was no longer working among His people? Oh, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is perhaps for another lesson, another time, we may give some appreciation to what transpired during those years because in the book of Daniel, we have at least these overviews. God revealed to Daniel there's going to be successive worldwide dynasties. In fact, on that consideration, our next slide is going to give us some understanding about them. Daniel, of course, interpreted a great dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And in that dream, there was a head of gold, a breast and arms made of silver. There was a midsection of, of, of brass. There was a lower section of iron. And then there was a, the feet were mixed of iron and clay. Now, as you and I read that, honestly, we would have very little idea what that would mean were it not for the fact God revealed it to Daniel. That represents four worldwide empires. The head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You, the Babylonians, are the head of gold. But there's going to be another kingdom after you. It's the silver one. It's the one, of course, that's the, Medo, the Medes and the Persians. And you and I read about them somewhat as we study two of the books of the Old Testament. But you might well notice there's also a brassy section of that image. And so too, again, God revealed to Daniel there's going to be yet a third kingdom after the first two. This one is the Greek Empire. And such leaders as Alexander the Great. And oh, what a great and fantastic military man he was. Finally, you might and I might notice that the iron section was the Roman Empire. At that point, you and I then envision that those empires would come and they would go. That in part occupies that 400 years, and so it was that those empires did rise and they fall. But isn't it fascinating that one other thing that Nebuchadnezzar saw in that dream, there was a stone made without hands. It rolled into the bottom of the image and crushed it to powder. What does the stone represent? Oh, you and I aren't left to wonder. For in Daniel chapter 2 and then again in chapter 7, the stone is identified, made without hands, being human hands, never touched it. It's the kingdom of God. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Daniel 2.44 The stone is the church. And in the days of the Roman Empire, God said, I'm going to establish my church. And aren't you thrilled that it has now been going on 2,000 years and it shall last until the end of time? Again, God said, it shall never be destroyed. Isn't it amazing? The kingdoms of men, they rise and they fall. They come and they go. They enjoy their liberty a while, but then they go into captivity and ultimately they are destroyed. But it shall not be so with the kingdom of our Lord. At that point, as you and I come to the bottom of that slide, we close that slide and turn our attention to this one. A series of maps, or at least images, that remind us of some of the things you and I in very quick fashion have noticed this evening. 
The Babylonian Empire is the colored section up at the top, and you'll notice it covered a fair amount of land. Again, that's the territory over which Nebuchadnezzar and those kings that followed him reigned. But following Nebuchadnezzar, we also come to this empire, the Medes and the Persians. Would you be impressed with how vast that empire was? The colored section from Egypt, what's modern-day Egypt at least, all the way as far right as the picture goes. That empire was enormous by those standards of that day. And yet, you and I remember references to the book of Daniel are to that very time frame. Not only that, the book of Esther in part has its setting in that time as well. Following the Persian Empire, we come to this one, which lists that tremendous empire of the Greeks, stretching basically as far east all the way to the far right on your picture. You appreciate one more time just how successful Alexander the Great was. He conquered everything in the known world of his day. No nation was able to stand against him. But yet God used him in the book of Daniel, identifies him as the he-goat in Daniel chapter 8. Isn't it amazing that then the Bible even had some things to say about the transpiring of those kingdoms? As you and I close that one, it brings us to another map, this time the Roman Empire. Rome too was a vast, vast empire, stretching from the Euphrates River on the right, which of course was on the east, all the way to, to the Atlantic Ocean on the west. Rome, too, was ferocious and fierce, and they were able to capture all in their wake. You may even notice what today is Great Britain actually fell in the Roman Empire of that day. Isn't it amazing, then, as these empires are at least mentioned and discussed from the perspective of Old Testament prophecy, it brings us to turn our slide and come to this particular point. Basically, a point of conclusion. This installment number two of this Old Testament timeline, last week we began at the creation and we ended with the Babylonian captivity. And tonight we, in essence, have cast a spotlight on the prophets, the place that they occurred, the work that they did, the great effort that they, in fact, carried out as it related to an insistence on faithfulness and repentance. Isn't it amazing then that those prophets helped pave the way for the coming of Jesus and for the establishment of the church? I suppose there have been some who have called into question, how important were the prophets? May I say that Revelation 19.10 still says that the testimony of the prophets is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so you and I are thankful for the work of the prophets and tonight, as we have tried to place them in their chronological order, as well as in the timeline of the Old Testament, I hope then as we in future times study those Old Testament prophetical books, we'll have a better sense of where they fell, the work that they did, and the blessing they were to the cause of the God of heaven. But as we close this lesson tonight, isn't it interesting that Jesus said in Luke 24, beginning in verse 44, he highlighted the fact that all that was spoken in the law and the writings and the prophets concerning me hath been fulfilled. So those prophets spoke about Jesus. The Lord knew it, and He insisted that they appreciate it had been fulfilled in the coming of the Christ. 
Tonight, as you and I bow in submission before the God of heaven, we truly realize what a great work those prophets did. Tonight, are you and I faithful to God under the banner of those prophets? Are we faithful to Him under the reality of what those prophets brought to the case of the coming of the Jesus and the reality of the church? If there's anyone in this audience tonight of whom that isn't true, would you please think urgently about your situation? Prophecy. You realize today we don't have any miraculous prophets anymore. And it takes us back to the lesson text. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in divers banners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. God speaks to all of us today in the same way. Through His Son, the words of the Master. Tonight, if you've never obeyed them, why not let tonight be that night? But if you have, why not come back to your first love? If you have wandered away, if you've become unfaithful, if you have allowed unbelief to describe your walk in life, you realize that just won't do. It's not pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, Your life and mine must be an open testimony to the very death of Jesus. And if that isn't true, why not come tonight and ask for prayers of brethren, prayers of forgiveness and rededication? If we could assist you in either of these ways tonight, we would insist and we'd encourage you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.